0: Last week, we took the first part of the chapter, of of the second chapter of Acts, and we read about the account of those disciples waiting on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and when he came, the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of fire, and the people that heard it, and some people heard them speaking in their own language, and they were amazed they didn't know what it meant. Others heard it, and they mocked them and said they must be drunk. And immediately following that is where I pick up in the Scripture reading today, verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11. Let me pause right there. You understood? Peter with the 11 makes 12, right? And you go back just a little bit, and you found out that Peter held a business meeting and said, gentlemen, we need to elect a replacement for Judas. So now they have 12 again. And out of these 12 that followed Jesus, the one who made the first step forward, the first proactive step to take take leadership, to take action from these apostles, all of them chosen, empowered by God, happened to be Peter. I'm not trying to make any big deal out of that other than just let's observe. Out of all 12 of these men and this thing happened and they're all now endued with power, Eleven are standing there with Peter, and Peter becomes their spokesman. He's standing there with the eleven, and he raised his voice to address this crowd that had gathered around to try and figure out what is going on, what is all the noise, what is happening in Jerusalem, why are these people speaking these languages that these foreigners can understand? And Peter saw an opportunity, so he stands up and he addresses the crowd, and says, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem... Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens. Now, when I start verse 19, that marks a different era in the last days, a different part of the last days. Peter proclaimed that what they were experiencing was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So they were a part of the last days. And you say, well, how long are the last days? Here's the answer. If you listen to me preach, the last days extend from Christ to Christ, the last days are not the last days just before Jesus comes back. The last days are from Christ to Christ. That's the end times. It's a long time, isn't it? But the closer we go through those that span of the end time, the closer we come to the coming of Jesus Christ. So that's how Peter was able to say, this is a fulfillment Of that that in the last days so you say well if that was the last days and that was fulfillment then what makes you think it's for today well we'll, we're we're still a part of the last days but verse 19 specifically zeroes in on a time period within those last days within the end times when he says I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. That hasn't happened yet. That didn't happen when Peter gave this message, it hasn't happened in the centuries since then. It is yet future for us. So Peter was able to describe, this is the beginning of it. This is where the outpouring starts. It goes throughout the end times. But even in the last days, whenever you will see these signs that lines up with the prophecies in the book of Revelation, even in that time, there's going to be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved which is the focus of why this is all important is so people will come to a saving knowledge of jesus christ fellow israelites listen to this jesus of nazareth was a man accredited by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did among you through him as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and he quotes from the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. And you'll fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here today. So, he was not, that what Peter was saying is, he was not talking about himself. He said, David died. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what was to come. He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David didn't descend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, which would be a reference to the coming Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's a little bit more to read. I'll incorporate that into my sermon as I go. But right now, I I want to pick up from that scripture reading that... uh, Robert Mounts, significant New Testament scholar, he's now passed away, looked at this and, and noticed there, it outlines itself with three major points that Peter makes in his sermon. And those uh, points are, he proclaims the historical account of the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as prophesied and fulfilled. The second point he makes in this sermon is there is a theological evaluation of the person of Jesus, both as Lord and Christ. And the third point he makes is there is a call to believe and receive forgiveness of sins. So see, even back then, preachers had three-point sermons. First, notice how Peter found this entry point for his sermon. The crowd came. They were mesmerized by what happened. They didn't understand it. And this is where Peter said, what a perfect opportunity to stand up and preach. I have the answer for their questions. So he took advantage of that. And when he stood up and he said, if you listen to me for just a minute, I will explain what is happening. But he didn't just explain what was happening. He took a few verses And he explained what was happening. So I kind of did the math on this. And roughly 20, 25% of Peter's sermons were devoted to explaining what happened. That meant 75, 80% of Peter's sermon was about, guess, Jesus. His Pentecostal sermon was about Jesus. I think that's a very good balance. I think that's really what Pentecost is about. It's not just about preaching about Pentecost because it's Pentecost and let's focus on Pentecost. Pentecost is about introducing Jesus to the world. It's about empowering people to take the message of Jesus to the world. And Peter demonstrated that in his sermon by not spending 100% of the time talking to people about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and about tongues and about gifts, he just said, here's a quick explanation. Jesus promised that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. Joel prophesied God was going to send his Holy Spirit. But now let me tell you what that's all about it's about Jesus, and that's where he went with the focal point of his message. Peter states that God validated the divine authority of Jesus through the miracles and the wonders that he performed. Peter further states that there were many witnesses to the fact. And Peter actually says to the crowd, he said, Jesus performed miracles. He performed wonders. And that validates him to be the son of God. But furthermore, you saw him do it. You are the witnesses to this. His miracles validated his ministry, his identity, his messiahship, He was the anointed one. He was the son of God. Well, what's your evidence? The evidence is the miracles that he performed. So the skeptic might say, now, wait a minute. Can't false prophets perform miracles? Isn't it prophesied in the Bible that false prophets will perform miracles in the last days? That doesn't prove they're the Messiah. That's true. But let me tell you something. The imitation always follows the original. There are no fake Rembrandts before there was a Rembrandt. The wannabes always come after the original. Jesus was the original. He was the first to ever come and make claims of Messiahship and reinforced that by the working of the miracles. Nobody else came claiming to be the Son of God. I do not find any significant references in the history of the Jews of false messiahs coming. There were no false messiahs preceding Jesus. The false messiahs came after the messiah came. Then they came out of the woodwork. In 2017, the National Geographic magazine ran an article about five men in the world today who claim to be the Messiah. See, the copies always follow after the original. They never precede. Five men claiming to be the Messiah. You know, as long as you're going to be a copy of the original, you'll never be as good. But Jesus is the real thing. He is the Messiah. And even if a few false messiahs do come along in the last days and they manage to do a few cheap parlor tricks and they manage to convince a few people, nobody else has ever conquered death. Nobody else ever will conquer death. None of these five messiahs that made in the National Geographic is ever going to rise from the dead and come back having conquered death. Jesus is the only one that we know he's the original. He sealed the deal. <laughs> the next thing that Peter addresses when he's he's uh, uh putting forth the case of Jesus is the death of jesus and uh, i i'm I'm somewhat amused i' mean in. Sh- entranced, intrigued by where Peter goes in the sermon. He points out to his audience that Christ was crucified, and then the next thing he says is, and you know it because you did it. Now, he couldn't be voted out of anything, so he didn't care what he said. He is talking to these people, he's bringing the responsibility and the guilt right to their feet. The boldness of Peter in preaching this is breathtaking. It makes you wonder if he was worried about losing his audience at this point. He has just slapped them with the accusation. He's, the Messiah was crucified. You are the crucifiers. And I find it interesting if you follow the story through that He had such a phenomenal response to this message. The truth was having an impact. And there may have been some offended, I don't know. But it didn't keep there from being fruit as a result of his preaching the truth. So notice how Peter marries together divine providence with human responsibility because it was it was prophesied that jesus must be crucified but then on the other hand peter says to the jews you did it so how do you reconcile these concepts of God foreordained he must be the sacrifice, yet blame anybody who did it. Remember when we were talking about the foreknowledge, a predestination conundrum a, a week or two ago? How do you marry these two together? Well, there there is a connection between these, and that is even though it was prophesied he must be Crucified. that does not absolve the people who did the crucifying of their guilt because their heart was wrong. They, they They were spiritually blind. They were angry. They were rejecting God. So both things can coexist, and they do. It's the paradox of God's foreknowledge working together with the independent acts of men so that we are not able to refuse our responsibility just because God knew we were going to do this. Number three, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. And that word agony is a word that is very commonly used in that language, in the Greek language, to refer to the labor pangs, the birth pangs of childbearing. So, when he chooses to use this word, is it possible that he is making some allusion here? It was impossible for the grave to hold him. It was impossible for death to hold him, and our mind goes to you ladies who have had children when it is the time, when it is now, when you're dilating, when you're on the delivery table, can you change your mind? You can't just say, I think I'll wait a few days. I think I'll wait a week. I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do it at all. It's impossible for you to change your mind at that point. So whenever he's using this term, it's impossible for death to hold him. Death could no more hold the Messiah down than a woman could hold her childbirth. He had to come forward. (laughs) The resurrection is solely and completely an act of God. But the resurrection of Jesus also validated his ministry and his messiahship, separating him from all the cheap clones that we run across. Now, in his in his later years, Harry Houdini began to become fascinated by the afterlife. What's, af- what's out there? I I read the. Uh, a biography of Harry Houdini when I was very young. So I, I remember a lot of these details. And I've seen some, some uh, documentaries on Houdini. And his, his mother died, and he was so close to his mother that he began to wonder, where is she? And can she hear me? Can I contact her? And Houdini went around and visited mediums. Anyone who proclaimed that they could communicate with the other side, he went and he investigated. But he was not going to be easily fooled. So he was prepared for all the tricks that these mediums pull. He had rubbed his calf's raw with salt. And he'd pull up his pant leg as he sat here. And he would move his leg over close to the medium so he could tell immediately if they begin to move their feet around and hit switches and, and, and whatever they would do to, to make things appear to happen. So he exposed medium after medium after medium and said, we can, we can, uh, we can call your mother back from the dead. She will speak to you. And, and of course when it came to the end, he found nobody who could legitimately do this. So he made a pact with his wife. And he said, when I die, I'm going to do everything I can to come back and communicate with you. And here's the secret password, so to speak. So that if you ever go to a medium and they said, here's your husband, if, if, I don't, if they don't have the password, it's not me. Because he, he, he didn't want her to be easily fooled. So they set up this arrangement. Harry Houdini died and we've not heard from him since. Jesus died, and three days later, (laughs) three days later, we heard from him again. He's the real deal. He came back, he presented himself with many infallible proofs. Then Peter says the next thing that validates Jesus is he was exalted. God raised him to life, and we're the witnesses of it. He exalted uh, Jesus to the right hand of God. He's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. This is all because Jesus ascended. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He was seated with the Father, which means he is sharing the deity, the authority, with the Father, which is the beginning of our understanding of the Trinity, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And of, and, of course, there are denominations that uh, deviate from that. Uh, there's a Jesus-only movement. They do not believe that there's only just one person uh, in the Godhead, and he runs around from place to place uh, playing different roles. He's Jesus while he's on earth. He's God while he's in heaven. He's the Holy Spirit when he comes back, but there's only one. But the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity... Uh, observes that there are three in one, three in one and if you're trying to get your brain around that can you explain the trinity to me? Uh, I can tell you like the man said, I can't even explain why I get my haircut; it doesn't hurt. So d- d- this we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just telling you from this point forward we begin to understand there's two there, in at least in one, but then the, ho- the Holy Spirit is, is sent. Now you got three. And Peter says he was ascended into heaven. He was he was uh, exalted to sit on the right hand of the Father, and the Father gave him the Holy Spirit. And Jesus did what only deity can do. He dispensed, he commissioned, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's reserved for deity. Common angels in heaven don't do stuff like that. And Peter ties that exaltation into the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that precipitated this sermon. Now, my wife has a religious practice. And... I know you're just, you're wringing your hands with delight, aren't you? Another pastor's wife story. (laughs) When we have family come visit and they leave, they have to call when they get home. So she's got it just about timed right. It's going to take them X number of hours to get home and she expects to hear from them. They pick up the phone because she wants to sleep at night, you know? Hi, just want to let you know that we made it. And then they talk for 15, 20 minutes. Third, I, I don't know what they got to talk about. <laughs> they, they were just here for three days. What do you got to talk about? I don't know. But she wants to know they made it. So Jesus stands there and he says to his disciples, he said, uh, you know, basically, here I am. I'm ready to go, and I'm going to send back to where I came from. But he said, when I get there, I'll let you know. And when he got there, and he was seated by the right hand of the Father, and he got the Holy Spirit, he said, just a minute, I've got I to make a call back. <laughs> go, Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fell, if there's one thing they knew for sure, is he made it. <laughs> He's seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the sign. This is the indication. He's there. He wasn't lying to us. But we've heard from him. He sent the Holy Spirit to testify of being seated by the right hand of the Father. The next point is very short. Point number two, the theological evaluation of Jesus Peter said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Calling him Lord, Peter knew that the Jews would associate the word Lord with the Old Testament word used and reserved for God alone. So when he used that word, he was putting Jesus on the same level as the Old Testament character that the Jews recognized. That was God. That was God on the mountain. That was God in the lion's den. That was God in the fiery furnace. But Jesus said, and this is God. So they made the connection with the use of that word. He shows that Jesus shares that title with the Father. He declares Jesus to be on the same level with God the Father, co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal, yet each having their own particular duties declared him to be sitting on the throne next to the Father where no angel sits and declaring him to have the divine responsibilities of the deity. And then when he said uh, Christ or when he said the Messiah, uh, Christ means the anointed one. The term clearly alludes to the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Scholar Gordon Fee says that the phrase "crucified Christ" would have been a uh, a term of of aggravation and annoyance for the Jews. It would have been something that they believed was incompatible to for the two terms to work together. You can't talk about Messiah and can't talk about crucified in the same breath because they did not believe their Messiah was going to come and be crucified. They did not foresee him in that way, shape, or form already. So when Peter is talking about the crucified Messiah. This is irritating the fire out of the Jews. They don't like that. They could not reconcile the anointed one that they believed would come, being the crucified one who did come. So Peter delivered this double whammy to the Jews when he boldly proclaimed Jesus to be crucified, and then for the second time, which already aggravated them, and he said, not only is he the crucified Christ, and I know you don't like that, but he's the one you crucified, and they didn't like that either. So he, he's just going for the juggler. He's holding nothing back. And the Jews believed that the Messiah would be their political deliverer. They wanted to be out from under the Roman yoke. That's what they were fully hoping for. Remember, whenever he was ready to ascend, the one, the any last-minute questions, yeah, when are you going to deliver us from the Romans? That was on their mind the whole time. But it was the Christian perspective that would develop, that would see the Messiah not as the political deliverer, but the deliverer from our sins, setting us free from the power of darkness, That's what we mean by him being the deliverer. And the third point, Peter talks about the call to salvation. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They didn't know what to do with this, they were emotionally impacted by his sermon. And they were at a loss. I mean, they, they were convicted. They felt the power of their guilt, the weight of their guilt, but they didn't know what to do about it. And so they said, well, you got us. What do we do? And Peter replied, Repent! Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think I'm going to dare to branch off just for a minute. There is... A segment of Christianity that believes that there is a formula for baptizing in water which that formula alone is effective and if you don't do it that way it's not really an accurate true effective legitimate baptism so it's baptizing in the name of Jesus only because this is the this is the scripture that they point to be baptized in the name of Jesus so it's it's been such a point of contention that oftentimes people from this other segment this other sect of christianity have maybe left the conventional church with the conventional baptism and entered one of those churches and one of the first things they're very interested in is how were you baptized were you baptized in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and if they say yes well you've got to be rebaptized it didn't take it's got to be done in the name of jesus and of course the the fallacy of that is is uh, Peter was not, by any stretch of the imagination, trying to give a fixed formula for how to do baptisms. He was simply saying, "Be baptized in recognition of Jesus." That is the reason why you're being baptized. He was not, by any stretch of the imagination, say, "Use these words and these words only." So it's a misappropriation, misunderstanding of Scripture. T- Take it that far. And he says, When you repent and when you get baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to your, you, and your children, and to all who are far off, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. And once again, if you try to take the Bible so literally that you say, Well, Peter says it's for you and your children, that's it. That's too literal. That's not what Peter was talking about. It was an expression that meant to you, and he didn't want to say, and to your children, and your children's children, and your children's children's children, and your children's children, because there's no end to it, because somebody legalistically is going to come along and say, well, he cut it off right there. It was just an expression to say it would go on from generation to generation to generation. We are the generations removed from that day of Pentecost, and the Scripture is saying the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you every one of you here today it's for you now people preach but it's the spirit convicts i mean i wish i could convict people i would i would do it in full time but i can't convict people it's the holy spirit that convicts peter said it's for you it's for your children to all who are far off, so it's for it's for your every generation, it's for every race, it's for every person, it's for every nation, it's for everybody, for all whom the Lord God will call, and with many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them. Listen to what he said. He pleads with them: save yourself. From this corrupt generation. Is is there a more appropriate sermon for the 21st century America today than to borrow this from Peter and to plead with people, save yourself from this wicked generation. Save your children from this wicked generation. I watched as our two graduates came up and stood on this platform today. And I thought to myself as we prayed, God, save them from this wicked generation. They stand here. We are launching them out from this church. They're going to go somewhere else. I won't be able to keep my eye on them. You parents won't be able to keep your eye on them. But God can keep his eye on them. So I'm praying, God, keep your eye on them. There is darkness like we've never seen in this world. And these kids are going to go out and they're going to encounter the darkness. Lord, let them be a light in the darkness, not encompassed by the dark, not engulfed by the darkness. Let them be a light that lights up the room with the light of Jesus Christ. Make them a testimony. That's That was what I was praying as we were praying. Make them a testimony. Make them an overcomer of the darkness. Not victim of the darkness. I'm praying save them from this wicked generation. I'm sick and tired of losing our kids. Save yourselves from this wicked generation. Quit playing footsie with the world. Save yourself from this generation. Quit compromising biblical values. Save yourself from this wicked generation. Quit compromising the truth of God's word. Save yourself from this wicked generation. Buying into the world's popular quotes and and practices. Save yourself from this wicked generation. I I imagine there could have been many different responses to Peter's sermon. We're not told of how everybody responded. No one thing, there was a number of people who said, "What, what do we do? And this is what anointed preaching is supposed to do. It's supposed to move people to know they have to do something. If they, if they just get preaching, and go away and say, uh, that was a nice lesson we had today, but they aren't motivated to say, what, I I need to do something. I feel so, so unsettled. There's something not right. I, I need to do something. That's what anointed preaching is supposed to bring them to a point of saying, what should I do? The, here's what you do. You repent. And you look for the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because repentance and coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life is a losing proposition. This was not for just a few people who are going to identify themselves as Pentecostals. It's not for a handful of churches in the world. It's not for 30%. I say that 30% of the world's population of Christianity is charismatic, and I'm thinking what is wrong with 70% of the Christians in the world that don't understand this is for you. This is for your children. This is to all who are far off. Come on. If 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 100% of Christianity was filled with the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have the Problem we're having in the world today. Seventy percent are dragging their feet. This is for you. The proclamation of the gospel demands a response. Chris Christopherson. How many of you know Chris Christopherson personally? In in a low ebb of his life, who knows what was going on in his life, but in this low ebb of his life, he wandered down in Nashville, Tennessee, into Jimmy Snow's church. Jimmy Snow is the son of the famous country singer Hank Snow. That might resonate with some of you. Jimmy Snow was an Assembly of God pastor, had his own church. Chris Christofferson went down, went into church, and Jimmy Snow preached such a powerful message. And the power of the Holy Spirit moved so powerfully. And at the altar call, as Chris Christopherson describes it, he said, I found myself weeping uncontrollably. I got up. I went down there and I stood. And he said, I was having some kind of an experience, but I didn't know what I was doing. He said, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure, what, why am I crying? What is this all about? Because anointed preaching, preaching brings you to the point where you realize you got to do something. If walking through the front is the only thing I can fake of, let's do that. you got to do something. Until finally, as he began to figure out what had happened to him, and what this was all about. And this was the power, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. This was anointed preaching that he finally was able to put some uh, uh, reasonable, rational thoughts together. And he sat down and he wrote that song, Why Me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one? Pleasures of Known. Why me, Lord? Lord help me, Jesus. I've wasted it. He demands we do something. The preaching of Jesus leads to repentance. And as a response, 3,000 got saved. And he said, And you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's not for the unsaved you got to get saved first. But if you get saved and you're still struggling in life and you feel like you're powerless and you feel like you're losing every battle and you know there's a Jesus and you know he died for you and you know he offers forgiveness of your sins and you desperately want to go to heaven but you just keep losing and you keep losing and you keep losing and you keep losing. losing. I'm telling you here today, I've got a spiritual diagnosis for you. You need the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because when you're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to find out you're not losing anymore. You're going to win your battles. You're going to win your battles. You need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And Peter's final word of instruction, save yourself. And I don't think you can save yourself from this wicked generation, from this wicked people without the power and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this always comes to this this climactic point when we talk about the Holy Spirit. And people come down and say, boy, I'm going to go down and see if I can speak in tongues. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to get alone with God. Say, God, I, I don't understand everything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand everything about the infilling, but I understand that I'm losing way too many of my battles. And I want to know if I can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, you can. You need to. You must. Let's seek the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Do you need an incentive to keep going once you've made your start? Well, if you don't find that power of the Holy Spirit, the world's going to swallow you up following jesus is not only about finding peace of mind in a crazy world it's not only about finding the hope of heaven when we die it's also about escaping the judgment that's going to come on the wicked so that we don't get pulled into their world i find great peace of mind in knowing that when the judgment comes it's not going to be on me my sins have been dealt with and forgiven and i'm walking in the power of the holy spirit and I'm, i'm finding that i can fight battles You can't fight without his endowment. Worship team, come.